This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth looks at the history of trams in Dunedin and Richard Stedman laments the removal of an old tram shelter. Gregor Campbell observes the hungry childhood of John A. Lee as well as his later political awakening and we finish with a look at the refurbishment of the historic Wayne's Hotel. They no longer rumble through the streets and their tracks have been pulled up. But Dunedin's electric trams used to carry millions of passengers each year. Steel tram tracks snake through most suburbs, and in places like Highgate and Opahoe, they even ran along the ridges of hills. Bill Southworth has been looking at the great age of these noisy electrical conveyances. Years ago, I rented an apartment in Toronto, Canada, only to be awakened at some ungodly hour by the clattering of trams outside my bedroom window. Trams, or light rail as they're now known, still run along tram lines through the streets of great cities like Rome, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, and, closer to home, Melbourne. But here in Dunedin, they rumbled no more. The tram era started when entrepreneur David Proudfoot introduced horse-drawn trams in 1879. He set up the first service which ran on steel tracks between North East Valley and St Clair. He soon introduced steam engines to pull the carriages. At the height of his operation, 32 tram cars, including some double-deckers, plied their trade. Three engines and 307 horses powered his fleet. Proudfoot was unsuccessfully prosecuted several times. Two people were killed in the first year of the combined horse and steam operation, and there were many complaints about the smoke and noise of the engines. In 1883, Proudfoot sold out to a new organisation called the Dunedin Suburban Tramways Company, which agreed to get rid of the steam engines within a year. After a nephew of Edward Gibbon Wakefield fell under a tram and was killed, the steam engines were indeed abandoned the following March. Electric trams appeared on Highgate in 1900. They were the first in New Zealand and heralded the beginning of a more than 50 years operation by the most efficient transport system in Dunedin's history. Horse-drawn trams lasted another 20 years, but lost out completely to electric trams by 1903, when the Dunedin City Council took over the company. That December, the Otago Daily Times was to wax lyrical about the new system. The electric cars were open for public traffic yesterday afternoon and a 10-minute service was maintained. The first car left the post office about a couple of minutes past two and ran to the gardens in 24 and a half minutes. Great care was shown by the motorman so as to come through the opening day without an accident and the clanging of the alarm gongs could be heard far and wide. So far as the public, which filled car after car during the day, is concerned, it cannot have helped experiencing a rare sense of pleasure and comfort in the privilege of travelling in electric cars after the years of experience it's had of the horse cars. However, the supposed safety of electric trams soon fell short of expectations. Within days of opening, the open tram cars showed their limitations. 
on a Saturday night, an old-age pensioner standing on a platform of a tram on the corner of Great King and Albany Streets fell off as it turned a corner. He sustained severe head injuries and died in hospital two hours later. The same morning, a conductor leaned out too far and struck his head on a pole. Fortunately, he recovered after spending some days in the hospital. The same day, another conductor fell off a tram in Castle Street and also struck his head. He was taken to hospital but recovered. These accidents provoked a letter to the editor. Sir, considering the cars have not yet been running a week and two conductors have been injured, it shows surely there are faults in the present system of running. The construction of the open cars is not all that is desirable, as the conductors are forced to walk along the footboard and are liable to get knocked off by posts which are on both sides of the line. No passengers ought to be allowed to stand. I have heard it expressed on all sides that the cars are allowed to travel too fast. I am yours, etc., Londoner. Things started looking a bit grim for the reputation of trams, when in the same month, Actually, on Christmas Eve, two trams collided on a line in Eden Terrace, Auckland. Three passengers were killed and 60 were injured. However, the public stuck with electric trams because they were cleaner, faster and ran more on time than the horse and steam trains they replaced. Despite Dunedin's modest and shaky beginnings, it began an expansion that would see the city have its own comprehensive public transport system by 1905. New tram sheds were built at the Market Reserve, and soon the tramway network linked up with cable car systems to Roslyn, Mornington, Kaikarai and Highgate. The tram network ran through the central city and reached out to suburbs such as North East Valley, Opahoe, Logan Park, Caversham, St Clair, St Kilda and Anderson's Bay. By the beginning of World War I, the trams were carrying 14 million passengers a year, Each tram ran an average of 135 miles a day and took 180 men to keep the system going. By 1945, passenger numbers had peaked at an incredible 31 million. Surprisingly, it was in that year that the City Council decided to phase out trams in favour of trolleybuses. The first of the new vehicles appeared on the Opaho route in 1950. The last tram ran just six years later. In his book, Riding the Rails, Jeff Smith described this last ride. Tram 55 passed into history on the night of March 30th, 1956, on a run from the Exchange to St. Clair. Appropriately decorated for the occasion, it attracted at least 3,000 people to line its route to wave the old car on its way. Now is the hour, and so long it's been good to know you, were heard from all quarters of the crowd of more than a thousand at the St. Clair Terminus. Many passengers were reluctant to leave the tram, but were directed to do so by the police. By September, the trolley buses had taken over. Trolley buses have, in their turn, disappeared, and public transport is now run with buses burning fossil fuel, which pollutes the planet and accelerates global warming. Anyone who's enjoyed a tram ride in Melbourne or elsewhere soon realises how foolish it was to remove our trams, this efficient and non-polluting form of transport. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Last month, Richard Stedman was surprised to see the historic tram shelter at Maori Hill suspended by a crane as it was lifted onto a trailer for removal, despite the efforts of local residents and others to save it and have it restored.
For more than 50 years, I have traversed the intersection of Highgate, Drivers Road and Balmacoon Road on an almost daily basis. I was aware that the former tram shelter had been earmarked for removal earlier in the year by the Dunedin City Council, owing to what it described as deterioration, lack of use and its iron roof reportedly interfering with a cell phone tower which had been installed in the area. This seemed to me a somewhat nefarious litany of excuses to remove the little shelter, but I was complacent enough to think that good sense would prevail and its historic significance would be recognised. It has been reported that the shelter was built for passengers taking the tram from Maori Hill to Logan Park for the New Zealand and South Seas International Exhibition, which was held in 1925-1926. But this is a naive interpretation of its history. More importantly, this was the last enduring artefact of New Zealand's first electric tramway system in its original location. The Roslyn Tram Company began trialling electric trams along Highgate on October the 5th, 1900 and introduced its full service on October the 23rd that year. The tram connected with the Roslyn cable car which ran up Rattray Street to Roslyn and down to Kaikarai Valley at Fraser's Road. Its journey began at the junction with the cable car line where it emerged above Robin Hood ground and while the cable car continued up Ross Street, the tram travelled to Maori Hill along City Road and Highgate terminating at Spylaw Street. Following negotiations with the company, ownership of the service was transferred to the City Council on February 1, 1921. True, the shelter was built in 1925 but it was not solely for the use of patrons bound for the exhibition. The tram could not run directly to the exhibition at Logan Park from Murray Hill because the topography restricted the building of such a service. Patrons on the tram connected with the cable car at the junction for the trip to town and transferred to the tram at the exchange to travel to the exhibition. Alternatively, they could use a new diesel bus service via Drivers Road and Pitt Street introduced for the purpose. The Otago Daily Times of June the 1st, 1925 reported that the Dunedin City Council's Tramway Committee had recommended authority be granted to erect a tramway waiting shed combined with a public convenience in a small reserve at the Murray Hill Tram Terminus with half the cost of the convenience portion of the structure to be borne by the General Committee. According to K.C. MacDonald, in Dunedin City Council, a century of enterprise, by 1936 the Roslyn Tramway's Maori Hill Electric line was past its best. With both the track and the plant worn out and facing increasing costs, the council opted to substitute with diesel buses and the last tram ran on July 1st of that year. The decision to remove the shelter has disappointed residents who recognised its historic significance and the familiarity it lent to the area but there appears to have been a predetermined disposition toward removing the structure, and although it was a significant landmark, the future of the small building is now uncertain and it may spend its retirement in Christchurch at the Ferrymead Heritage Park. The Dunedin City Council, which owned the structure, has given it to the Otago Heritage Bus Society, which reportedly intends to take it to Ferrymead. On the evening of the day on which the shelter was removed, the city hosted the annual Heritage Awards to celebrate the success of various preservation projects in the area. If the DCC wishes to demonstrate consistency in its support for heritage projects in the city, then surely the logical thing to do would be to refurbish the shelter and install it at the Toitu Settlers Museum alongside the restored No. 1 Roslyn tram whose passengers it served.
or was its removal from Maori Hill simply an act of expedient vandalism? Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. During the Great Depression, the throngs of unemployed Americans used to call the Salvation Army the Starvation Army. And the reason? The army used to force these hungry men to listen to endless hymns and sermons before they got a serving of free soup. Earlier, as a child, future Labour politician John A. Lee had found Salvationists in Dunedin much more accommodating, something he couldn't say for another local denomination. This report from Gregor Campbell. As long as we went to Sunday school, my mother allowed us liberty, liberty within Presbyterian confines. She did not mind us being the cuckoos amid any nest of religious sparrows. When we followed the loaves and fishes, my mother knew economic insight. The holy willies were going to throw a party. Well then, we had a duty to be there. We went over in a body, my brother and I, and we were welcome. The Sunday school was in the enthusiastic stages of a membership campaign. More than our family were chasing the bun fight. The school had been divided into two factions, the red and the blue, with buttons, badges, squads and slogans. A broad Scot had been to the United States and had come back with an American drawl added to his northern enunciation and was playing an American method of spectacular evangelism. Each division of the school fought for adherence. As in all such campaigns, few real heathen were caught from off the streets, but many were gathered from other Sunday schools. Piracy is ever easier than conversion. And even in adult evangelical campaigns, there is a permanent type of backslider who arrives to have a regular outburst as a periodical drunkard arrives in an hotel to let himself go. This regularly backsliding convert is the bulk of the evangelist's raw material. Our family could be seduced at any time as a donkey is supposed to be drawn by a carrot. We were economic determinists in our choice of Sunday schools. The Reds, whom we joined, won the campaign by two. We prided ourselves upon the fact that we had conferred the great honour upon them. Indeed, when we received no more honour than any other two converts, we felt that the Reds were tardy and grudging in their recognition. But on the Sunday we joined, we spent our halfpennies at the back door of a sweet shop. Our presences were of sufficient importance to prevent any embarrassing questions. Miraculously, Mother would scrape and deny to get that halfpenny, but we were becoming used to preventing Mother from the outrageous waste by spending our halfpennies for Russian toffee. Then came the celebration, the reward for our merits. I remember that ghastly night. For a whole week we had been keyed up with anticipation. We turned up early, our faces shining with common household soap and goodwill. We were hungry and excited. We had arrived for the widow's might. We may have appeared eager, even greedy. If we did, I have no apologies. We were not the only eager ones. The bright little Christians who wore new clothes and boots and who had been refreshed with a more appetizing meal than we were possessed of the same pagan anticipation. But theirs was only the anticipation of a night. Ours was the intense anxiety of a whole week. We had come to enjoy the feast that we had bought and paid for by joining up, and we expected our full rights. We were taken the least notice of, because we were the most patched. Maybe, like our clothes, we had a cast-off appearance. Blessed are the meek. First we were marshalled into the church hall, where we sang and prayed, and then we went to the supper room. The proselytizer with the American drawl was determined to fill our souls to repletion with broad sanctimony. 
and as we prayed, I held my hand reverently across my eyes and peered through the openings between my fingers, gazing at the full plates. The cakes were tantalising. I essayed the plates and made up my mind upon which I would first pounce when the time came. I excitedly debated the merits of all that was offered. Tart, custard, ice cream, or plain fruit cake. Which would I grab first? Which second? Which third? The first cake had to be not only flavoursome, but capable of speedy ingestion, so as not to obstruct the advance upon the second. My eyes must have glinted as eagerly through my expanded fingers as the eyes of a hungry rat gleam in concentrated purpose from the dark corner of a cellar at eating time. Too many had turned up for the insufficient provision. There was a spate of sanctimony, but a lack of comestibles, and there were not enough places at the table for all. The sponsors of our feast with characteristic canniness, we're not going to permit spiritual values to be buried beneath too much flesh pot. And the last were not first, nor the first last. We were all arranged in classes, and when the cakes and places seemed insufficient, the least known were detailed by the teacher for the second sitting. We were the friendless, the patched, the greedy, the ill-mannered, the outcasts, we had turned the scale for the Reds, but we had no share in the triumph. You sit over there, and we'll fix you up afterwards. We sat. We were spared no portion of the grace before meals. It was as emphatic and thankful as the provision was meagre and Presbyterian. It was pronounced by a miserable drawler, who drawled until the cups of tea grew cold. He prayed his thanks to the giver of good while we peered through our fingers at the cakes we would never pounce upon. And the humbug must have been aware of the skimped provisions. Maybe he was attempting a miracle, trying with Presbyterian humility to make the fragments, not into loaves and fishes, but into forty basketfuls so that the bun fight might yield a profit. Awful night. There was no second sitting. The cakes vanished in about two minutes. The children at the tables were shabbily treated. The second sitting was absolutely swindled. We made wry faces. We knew unchristian rage. We cried inwardly. No attempt was made to send out and buy a few cakes and pastries. And it was a wealthy congregation in a well-endowed church with a comfortably remunerated minister. Blessed is the memory of the Salvation Army, for they understand how to run a bun fight. Hoch the Booth family, for they distended the paunch before they attempted to give the mind wings. Blessed is the army, for they grinned when I came three times in the pauper's queue for a bag of edibles. Blessed is the Salvation Army, who understands how to run a bun fight for juvenile bums and deadbeats. For all their blatant faults, they never mistake miserableness for holiness. A plague on the memory of the holy willies, who enticed children with current buns and sent them away hungry. For we were greedy, hungry and ambitious, and they fed us not. After spending time in Borstal, Lee was sent to work as a labourer on a farm near Wyndham. The conservative political views of a farmer's son there caused a political awakening in Lee which was quite the reverse of the beliefs being preached to him. In the years before World War I, a young John A. Lee having been brought up, the poorest of the poor in Dunedin, 
having been sent to Burnham, which was effectively a borstal for people of his age, finally found that his skills as a farm worker were in demand and was something of which he could be proud. He also, during that time, had a political awakening, which he describes in his book, Delinquent Days. Food for the animals was scarce when the frost came down, so we loaded winter turnips and scattered turnips and hay on the bare pastures. We broke out portions of the turnip field for the hungry sheep. We would drive stakes through the frozen crust and run out netting that let the sheep have portions of the field at a time. My mentor would be the farmer's son, a strong, heavy man who could swing a maul and drive a stake. He would hold a stake and I would drive, and then another, until my hands grew numb in the freezing air. Then he would take a turn and show the skinny worker how a farmer's son could operate. His maul swinging certainly demonstrated the superiority of the owning as against the puny efforts of the working class. He would start on politics and tell how in the days gone by the farmers would get all the help they needed for a few shillings, and the men would be out in the fields with teams at dawn and work until nightfall. The Liberal Party has ruined New Zealand. All the good workers are on cooperative contract. They want too much wages of us to work on farms these days. They scarcely earn their keep. Holding a maul with numb hands, scared of the police, a dauntal dark worker, although in the Wyndham latitude, that was not a long day in midwinter. Conscious of my Burnham inferiority, I was made to feel I barely earned the food I ate, let alone my wage. As I listened, I receded into a lesser significance. I was one of the spoiled working class, he seemed to say, or my imagination seemed to make him say. Not, as I have said, that food was grudged on this farm, merely that my adviser was a thoroughgoing rural Tory with a grudge against the Liberal Party. Seddon was dead, and Ward had succeeded, although I was unaware of the significance of any political groupings. Joe Ward, said the boss's son, is too much for the working man. What an amazing revelation to me that was. Someone stood for the working man. So far from press and politics had I been that I was a political infant, an infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light. And on that frosty day, I discovered that someone called Joe Ward stood for the working man. How many attitudes do we assume through polarity? Ward, the evil influence of my informant, became my hero. Thus did a Wyndham Valley farmer give me my first political direction. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Dunedin residents had their first view of the freshly redecorated facade of Wayne's Hotel in the Exchange Precinct last month, when contractors removed scaffolding from the building, marking the completion of a $3 million refurbishment and revealing a colour palette which highlights the decorative Italianate style of the Victorian building. Richard Stedman reports. Wayne's Hotel has been an integral part of the exchange area for more than 150 years since Job Wayne opened his first hotel in Mant Street. Next door to his three-storey building was the Commercial Bank, and following the failure of the bank, Job Wayne took over that building to enlarge his hotel. His business flourished, and he took the opportunity to purchase an adjacent property to provide a Princess Street frontage. In 1878, he commissioned architects Mason, Wales and Stevenson to design a new hotel, which has overlooked the exchange for 142 years. At the street level were the shops of Livingston Stationers and Brown Ewing Drapers. 
The shops were set between Port Chalmers' bluestone columns, finely axed, which gave a substantial feeling to the building. The capitals are of Kakanui stone, one of the harder limestones from North Otago, and from these spring arches decorated with carved work. Over the main entrance is a recessed balcony with a stone balustrade and carved from a single stone is an eagle with wings outstretched in the keystone. Atop the facade, the pediment displays the monogram of Job Wayne, the original proprietor, which is highlighted by the new colour scheme in the building. While many other surviving heritage buildings in Dunedin have been stripped of their original facades and now present bland faces, it is pleasing to see this building retaining its original character. Job Wayne was born in London in 1836. As a teenager, he began to work for James McAndrew, and when his employer decided to migrate to Dunedin, Wayne joined him. He arrived in Dunedin aboard McAndrew's ship Titan in 1851 and spent a year working on McAndrew's farm at Mornington. In 1852, when gold was discovered in Victoria, Australia, he decided to try his luck and then returned to Dunedin in 1857, about the same time as his parents and siblings followed him to Otago. He was employed by George Duncan, who was at that time the proprietor of the commercial hotel, and in 1859 he entered into a partnership to buy the livery stables previously run by Duncan in Rattray Street, and then in 1863 opened a hotel in Mant Street, which he managed for about 12 years. Six months after the completion of the present hotel in 1878, he retired and then spent much of the next five years travelling before returning to the management of his hotel. Between 1885 and 1888, he was also engaged in railway contracting and was involved in the construction of the Manuka Creek Tunnel and the permanent railway from Clarksville to Lawrence. In 1888, at the age of 52, he finally retired. His hotel is sited in what was the busiest part of Princess Street in the area that was the centre of the city. At the time, it was opposite the government buildings, the post office, the Supreme Court, the Union Bank and the Union Steamship Company offices and was well placed with the telegraph office and custom house nearby, while the railway station was a three-minute walk away and the wharf a similar distance. All of these were of great advantage to commercial travellers and other visitors to the city on business, and the hotel was always in demand. Wayne served a term on the Dunedin City Council in the late 1860s and for 12 years was a member of the Dunedin City Fire Brigade, which was a purely voluntary organisation. He served as captain for seven years from 1868. He died in 1922 at the age of 86. Wayne's Hotel is one of 13 CBG hotels which were launched as Fable Hotels and Resorts throughout New Zealand earlier this year. It is Dunedin's oldest hotel and recently underwent a $3 million refurbishment to make it a five-star boutique hotel to be known as Fable Dunedin. For the quality of their work on the refurbishment, Mike Williams Decorator Limited of Dunedin won six awards at the recent New Zealand Master Painters Conference. Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust.
Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.